Hey, what's good, Refi Nation? We're here with John, and on this episode today, we have a amazing conversation for you with Ryan, Speed and Scale co-author, also an advisor at Kleiner Perkins, was formerly Chief Deputy Technology Officer uh, for the United States government. In today's episode, we're gonna be diving into some of Ryan's backstory, speed and scale as a blueprint and a plan to mobilize collective action towards tackling the climate crisis, and ultimately a framing on how we can think about where technology can be in service of this larger mission. John, any things that you're particularly sitting with from today's conversation? Yeah, man. Oh, thank you so much for getting Ryan on the show. I know that uh, you guys know each other from other settings and yeah, amazing guy, such great energy, powerful communicator. You could tell his heart is 100% in the right place and just a resounding sense of optimism about our ability to execute on this plan that is so simply laid out in speed and scale. Uh, one of the key themes I think keeps coming up is just recognizing there are specific things that each of us can do which have outsized positive impact in the world. And this book and this community at Speed and Scale provides us with the opportunity to lean in and figure out which of these efforts most align with our personal gifts and our strengths. And so I think yeah, this has been a fantastic episode, hopefully first of many conversations with Ryan in the community at Speed and Scale. And um, yeah, I think the, the main idea I was left with was just this concept of really evaluating what is technology actually in service of. And as we look at Web3 and the powerful coordination tools that we have, and we're designing these new mission-driven communities with DAOs, what are we actually designing this in service of? Is it of the planet? Or is it for a hidden desire to accumulate wealth and, you know, self-interest at the detriment of other things? What's up, Refi Nation? It is so good to be here with you today, Ryan. John, how are we doing today? Ryan, how are you feeling? Fantastic. Can't wait for this conversation tomorrow. Hey, yeah. John. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. I mean, we've got a lot of ground to cover. And... It's going to be a fun conversation to cover, you know, I think some of the things we have in store for us today, we've got Ryan, your story, speed and scale, you know, talking about literally what is, I think, the singular blueprint that exists right now for how we collectively, in a globally coordinated way, tackle the climate crisis. Um, so we've got a lot to uncover there, talk about, you know, where things are headed, what we're seeing on the ground and up, you know, bird's eye view. So. With all that, is definitely we're in spicy times tomorrow, without a doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, why, you know, Ryan, why don't we begin with you? Why don't we begin with, oh, you know, to the extent that you're willing to share, would love to hear your story and background that sort of like brought you to this moment, you know, working at the intersection of climate and tech and all the relevant fields. Like, tell us about you and what led you here. You know, the role that I have today is I get to sit in this incredible spot, which is at a venture capital fund called Kleiner Perkins, as well as working for the chairman there, John Doerr. And we get to invest in, you know, not only disruptive companies in technology, but really in companies that are trying to tackle the climate crisis, as well as working on healthcare. And so for me, it's, it's, it is a dream job. But to rewind back in time to find out how I, I ended up here, I would say it's been a mix of uh, a lot of luck, but also a lot of grit and persistence and curiosity. I think curiosity has been a consistent theme of at least my career. Um, prior to the time here, I was uh, at the White House. I was the deputy chief technology officer for the country. This was during the Obama administration. I was a group of you know the first techies that were trying to figure out how can you help in government. Uh, I, I kind of raised my hand when I saw a tweet from Todd Park, who you know really well, saying he was creating this fellowship program. Come for six months, serve your country. And I was like, yeah, I could do that. Like six months isn't too much time. And I've always wanted to to help and serve in this fashion. And um, I remember uh, (laughs) I ended up serving, by the way, for three and a half years. But it was always in my head six months. Like what problem can I work on for six months while I'm in D.C. that could be the best of use of my time and, and then really create impact on, on a good way. And so I spent my time first at the Department of Health and Human Services, then with Todd at the White House working on data broadly, and then got pulled into the healthcare.gov you know, disaster turnaround that you know, has led to more than 20 million people to getting healthcare. 
Nice. And then stayed on for the my remaining time, year and a half there, working on creating the United States Digital Service, a way that folks could serve and do these tours of duty. Um, I have this belief that I think all of us should be spending time in different parts of you know, the world, not just the world physically, but also the different levers we can pull on. So spending time in the private sector, spending time working in nonprofits, spending time working in government, spending time in finance. Because I think if you understand how those levers and motivations work, you can, you know, change, change the world. Um, the quick, like, you know, growing up story was I, my, my parents both worked for the U.S. military. Dad was actually enlisted in the Air Force. That's how he, you know, when he came here when he was 17, got his citizenship and education. And so there's some, you know, photos of him back when he's, you know, early 20s and, you know, an Air Force get up, uh, you know, really trim, shortcut hair. Uh, and um, but for my mom and dad, they they traveled and worked on these different bases around the world. So, of course, San Diego, then San Francisco, then ADAC, Alaska, then to the Philippines, where my brother and I were born, to Germany, then mm-hmm. to Naples, Italy, where we spent six years, and then ultimately San Diego for high school. And so this idea of service, like I can't say it just was sparked by Todd Park's tweet, but it really was <laughs> by it. You know, seeing what my parents were doing and working on and, and seeing how that connected to just the, the bigger sphere of things was really impactful. I mean, it's just beautiful to feel like the presence of your curiosity and your vitality and you're sort of like, hey, like, you know, I, I just it just it makes it, it reminds me of like, you know, a kid in a candy store being like, my God, like, how do we explore all these ideas and these levers around how we can start to affect change in the world? Um, you know, I'm curious for you. You know, I feel like you have set, you know, you've like crossed so many different intersections and so many disciplines. Um, what are you finding yourself be most curious about now? And we can start to maybe even like anchor on speed and scale and some of the things. But yeah. just like in this moment, where are you finding your curiosity drawn to? You know, on this theme of curiosity, I think it's really important just to maybe share a little bit of a story on that yeah, one as well. Too. There, there was this um, uh, sort of joke on the healthcare.gov rescue team that – uh, you know, Ryan was the chief curiosity officer, right? Wow. It was, um, yeah. and, and the reason why I got that title was I was always wondering what was broken around the corner or why a certain problem mm. was happening. And you kind of, I kind of, it helped us stay ahead of the next crisis, I would say, right? I think mm-hmm. in any work environment, if you are the most curious about things, it doesn't matter what world you're in, for-profit, non-profit, at a startup, at a big company, you're really curious and motivated to like fix things or build things or create things or test things. And I think that mode of always being curious is a really helpful one. I think it's also sort of helpful in guiding what you do next in your career, right? I always love the opportunities that exist, which kind of take advantage of 70% of what Mm -hmm. you've built to date and experience, Mm -hmm. but that 30% of being willing to expose you to new things. I historically was in deep enterprise software, Salesforce and Microsoft, and I got—I was able to take the leap into healthcare because of this uh, accelerator called Rock Health. They were explicitly saying, "Folks that were, you know, from tech, come work in healthcare. We'll give you that part of it uh, through, you know, our mentors and advisors. But bring in what you have." And that same tweet from Todd Park was, "You know, we know you don't have government service, but come in and let us help be that bridge." And so I'm a really big fan of. Yeah, you know, taking opportunities that look like that, but it's a really great way to do these like lateral pivots, yeah. you know, in your career. That is amazing. That is like, yeah, I just like love the zest for like, hey, let's just like let's explore, you know, like, and and I think it's probably so fitting too that like at the highest level, the climate crisis, like it is such a cross disciplinary yes. playing field, you know. The, the, the climate crisis touches everything and uh, every way we live, move, eat. It touches the entire society. John Doerr says it best, right? To do this clean energy transition successfully, it's the mm-hmm. transformation of our society. Um, you know, your question was, you know, where did curiosity lead you? And it really has led into the, uh, uh, I can maybe share the story of why speed and scale exists, why mm-hmm. that, you know, John Doerr and Ryan Pinchotsrum set out to create a plan on the climate crisis. And I think it was because mm. for one, I was curious at putting together the past that Kleiner and John Doerr had spent, you know, in 05, 06, 07, right? This clean energy one O wave. 
And also the new wave that John was participating in with Bill Gates and others creating breakthrough and then the, you know, direct investing that he was doing out of the family office into clean tech in 2015, 16, and 17. And so I started working for John around that time, 15, 16, and got a front row seat at the investments that he was making, the philanthropic work he was doing around it. And we both looked at each other and at a point, this was 2019, so Christmas time, right before the pandemic, uh, and kind of said, well, if we were to double down, triple down, go all in on climate, what would that look like? And the question was, well, what if we put an OKR <laughs> around the climate crisis? And maybe that could guide our work. And so we got to work at the start of the year. We did what any engineer, investor, anybody curious does. You, you start doing research, you start reaching out to people, you spend time with experts. And so we did that. We, we had this draft set of OKRs and we started talking to maybe, uh, I'm trying to think, because it was right during the break when the yeah. pandemic was starting. So a lot of these conversations were switching to Zoom very quickly meant we could record them really easily. And in the initial phase of maybe conversation 20, and this was us spending time with like scientists and other engineers and other investors, we was just getting feedback on our OKRs. And we then were like learning so much. And in these conversations, we're being so inspired by the people on the ground doing the work that we said, well, it's kind of unfair that we're getting this insight. Like, what if we find a way to translate this for the world? And so Speed and Scale as a Spark was born there. Two years later, over 100 conversations with activists, policymakers, entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and 35 really compelling stories came from it, a set of objectives, 10 of them, with 55 key results, all time-bound, all measurable, all really aggressive, came to be. And so Speed and Scale is a plan. It isn't the only plan, Tamar, but it is yeah. a plan that is, I think, takes advantage of the best of what we all have to offer, right? We, this collective we, you know, the book is structured in two ways, the solutions and the accelerants. And we can talk about the solutions in a second, but the part I love about the book is the accelerants. It's about winning the policy and politics, right? Because that has a huge role to pay, play. It's about turning movements into action, everything from the ballot box to the boardroom, getting companies to make climate commitments. It's about innovation, driving down the cost of clean energy and investment because we've got to deploy more. And I think the thing that Speed and Scale does very uniquely is it puts those four on an equal pedestal, right? Yeah. Technology isn't going to be your savior. Policy can't do it alone. You know, you know, activists nice. can't just shut down every pipeline. We all four of us, you know, these four levers have to work together. Man, I love that. And I so appreciate the simplicity of taking the complex web of existential threats that materializes in climate change and distilling it into a simple plan that you can write on a napkin. Um, I was a big fan of OKRs, objectives and key results. Um, yeah, pre-ordered the book, What Matters. I've used it in every startup I've been a part of. And when I saw Speed and Scale coming out, I was just like, this could be the thing that really helps people see clearly this is actually what needs to happen. And it's doable. It's not only manageable, but these are the exact things that we need to do. So maybe Ryan, you could provide us just a high level like overview of the six solutions and the four accelerants. And then maybe give us a sense of where we actually are today. You guys have yeah. an amazing tracker on the website, um, seeing where the progress is, and then maybe uh, we can lean into where the opportunities are. But yeah, how about that, man? How's that go? I, I would I would love to. And so for anybody that's listening, if you just go to speedandscale.com, you can see these objectives and key results. If you go to slash poster, you can get one of these, uh, which is the plan in the most simplest form. <laughs> um, and so what I'm showing to Shamar and John for folks that are listening is a poster that has the six solutions and the four accelerants. But uh, they are quite this, John. It's like it's we first have to electrify transportation, getting mm -hmm. gas and diesel out of our vehicles, leaning on uh, batteries, leaning on hydrogen, figuring out what to do about sustainable air fuels and all those pieces. But electrifying transportation is a humongous part of getting towards zero. We then have to decarbonize the grid, quite simply, ending coal, making sure that anything that's gas is actually being captured, but really leaning on solar, wind, geothermal, storage, the world of other energy options that don't pollute carbon. We have to fix food that's eating less beef, lamb, and cheese. It's not going vegan. While going vegan and vegetarian probably leads you to a healthier lifestyle, it actually, that isn't the solution. The solution itself mm -hmm. is less beef, 
less lamb, and less cheese. Switch to the other proteins that don't emit as much, uh, emit as much methane and damage our forests in the process because of, you know, yeah. you got to tear down a forest to have a cow farm. Um, mm-hmm. On the food piece, it's also about wasting less as well as finding ways to compost and make sure things don't end up in the landfill. We've got to protect nature ending deforestation, protecting our oceans. Uh, We've got to then clean up industry, which is steel, concrete. These are really hard. These are multi-gigaton problems. We then also have to find alternatives to plastics and other things that require fossil fuels. No matter how aggressive we are about doing these five to six, or these uh, five actions, we're still left over with stubborn carbon. And this is because we, you know, we have to eat, we still have to build our cities. And our model, as well as the UN, show anywhere between five to 10 gigatons a year that we still have to offset. And so we need carbon removal, nature-based and engineer-based to get ourselves to zero. So we do those six, John, that's how we go from 59 billion tons a year to zero, but we've got to do it quicker. And so there's accelerants I shared earlier policy and politics, turning movements into action, innovation and investment are how we get there quicker. And so yeah. those 10 objectives are paired with three to five key results each. And that's the plan. That's at least the direction we have to go. What are the things that you're seeing now having put this plan out, you know, now out for the world to see, having made progress on many of these different dimensions, like how are you, what are you seeing, Ryan, on the ground now, having had now the book out and this plan out um, in terms of what you're seeing? And so, you know, the plan is also kind of created to orient people around where they can help, yeah. right? Where they should be spending their time. And so I really encourage folks to look at these key results as the measures that we need to collectively move. And so when you go to Speed and Scale today, you can actually see for each of these key results, how are we doing? Are we off track? Are we on track? What's the actual value? You know, for anybody listening that sets OKRs for their companies, you know, mm-hmm. when, if you if you create the key result, you've got to likely be the one to measure it. And so uh, we spent perhaps, uh, I would say, almost an equal amount of time as, as the book writing phase to the data collection and data presentation side of things. And so the optimistic parts of what the tracker is showing is that there are some places we're moving faster than expected uh, on electric vehicle adoption. It's gone exponential, right? You see this 1%, 2% to 3 to 6 to 11 just in these past set of years. But not just that. You go zoom in city by city. There's cities in China that have reached above the 90% range. You go to Norway, it's above 90% of new vehicles are electric. Like that's momentum. You jump into the decarbonizing grid part. You start to see that the cost of solar and wind Mm -hmm. is cheaper Mm -hmm. for the vast majority of the world. That wasn't true before 2018, right? So something to think about is for all of us that are entering in this fight, because remember, it's only been five years for me, John Doerr, 20, Al Gore, 30 years, right? They've been saying there's going to be a future where this stuff is cheaper. You and I, we're living in it today, right? Which makes, I think, hopefully our part of the fight easier, but it shows that these cost curves and things work. Um, venture capital is an area of, of, of incredible optimism. When we wrote the book, I think it was like eight to nine billion a year was being deployed. Or no, 13 was. That's right, 13 in 2020. We said it'd be great if we got to 50. And it might take us this full decade to get there. Last year in 2021, $57 billion was deployed in venture capital towards clean tech companies across the spectrum. A lot of them really on mobility and energy and then proteins and then, you know, not enough on cleaning up industry and carbon removal, but, but those are are, are exciting spaces. And so I don't think it's going to be that pace this year, but last year really got the world of of momentum going. But I think there's also uh, something to comment there as well, too, is that the funds that were created in the past two years have a lot of capital to deploy right now. And so if you're thinking about building a company, the clean tech environment is wildly uh, uh, on fire in a good way. Like you have lots of capital, lots of people, lots of scar tissue as well of what works and what doesn't. So um, (laughs) these are the optimistic things. And so now when you go to that tracker and you click to filter by code red, so not the Mm -hmm. green area, a handful of key results hit you really hard, right? The first one is that we still burn a lot of coal around the world. The second one you'll see is that the amount of methane leaks, the amount of methane emissions that are happening, these leaks that are happening around the world, we've got to cap them. Um, We eat too much beef. 
as you know, the developed world. And so we've got to figure out how to change our personal eating habits, um, protecting nature. Deforestation is happening at a rate that's been pretty consistent. How do we turn that around? You jump to the um, accelerant side of things. The commitments countries are making still are falling yeah. short. We have a lot to celebrate with the Inflation Reduction Act and the work that the U.S. Totally. is doing. Like the U.S. is back, <laughs> yeah. but only as of like June, July this year, yeah. right? Like, um, but it's not green, right? That that mm. policy gets us from what a fifteen to twenty percent reduction to thirty to forty, which is huge. We really need to get to 50% by 2030. And so if anyone that's listening is in the policy side in the U.S., you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was a lot of carrots, a lot of incentives, a lot of market-based stuff. We need some sticks in there. And sticks come in the form of what you see happening in California, saying we're going to ban fossil fuel vehicles by 2035. Or sticks coming in from the EPA, hopefully, around tightening the standards around how much should be, you know, polluted into our cities and things like that. Um, code red around companies and their commitments. You know, every company likes to put their green badge on, but believe it or not, from the data that we've seen, we've gone to 500 of the Fortune Global 500 and clicked on their ESG reports, clicked into their PDFs. Only 5% of them have a clear net zero target by 2050. 50 of them have a net zero, I'm doing the thing, yeah. but you go in and you read the fine print, it's not clear. It's not, you know, yeah. and the thing that we're mm -hmm. pushing folks to do at these companies, if you're an employee listening, have your company be really clear about the goal you're setting for 2050, that it's net zero, all scopes, all GHGs. Because, you know, John, you were talking about the OKR piece that, you know, that you've used in the work context. You know, we all need to be aligned towards what we're aiming for. Mm -hmm. And so I'll share, you know, maybe two examples here. Uh, You've got a company like Unilever that has an amazing net zero goal for 2039. Everybody in their company knows that zero is the target, so they're thinking about how do we change packaging? How do we change suppliers? How do we do all those things? Let's pick on uh, Chevron, who only has a scope one and two emission target for net zero. <laughs> they want to be the cleanest fossil fuel provider on the planet. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the thing is, what that means is for the employees there, they're not looking to change their revenue streams around the oil and gas they sell. And what that means is that they're not all in on this clean energy transition, right? You jump to a shell who has a scope one, two, and three goal. For them, their employees go, oh. I've got to create new revenue streams. I've got to invest in geothermal. I've got to invest in offshore wind. I've got to be like Orsted. And so these goals that we set for 2050, even if it means that we all aren't the leaders then at these companies, are so important because they align our teams towards a target. <laughs> I love Absolutely. That. And just wanted to anchor it towards like the broader coordination effort that's happening. Because I think, you know, objectives and key results are incredibly powerful coordination tools. How do you get thousands of different people to move in the same direction? Okay, ours are a great mechanism to do that. And we're using the kind of um, reduce emissions by 50% before 2030 and net zero by 2050 targets that were set at the COP um, in Paris, the Paris Climate Accord. And as we drop this episode, this will be during the COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh. What, kind of, what kind of connection do you have um, with the COP negotiations and what kind of conversations are going on between the plan and the progress and tracking between speed and scale and what's happening at these delegate conversations every year? Is there any interface there or what's that look like? You know, we're, we're part of the community. I, I think the, the neat thing about the climate crisis is that there's not going to be one savior, right? Like literally there will be thousands of heroes that are all helping us in this direction. I think in other industries and fields, we look for that one, you know, kind of person. And here, there, there's going to be a lot of heroes, which is a good thing. Our tie to the UN and that process is trying to be an external party pushing them to reach even higher. If you, you know, mm -hmm. jump into the book, we share the story of Paris, right? When yeah. everyone got together in Paris, we interviewed Christiana Figueres, who shared the, the challenges it took to get every country to come to the table to at least commit to setting a goal. You know, before writing the book, we had sort of this thing like, well, Paris is come, you know, because is too is not aggressive enough. The goals set there aren't tight enough. And, you know, we had this sort of uh, maybe negative mindset toward it. And when we spend time with Christiana and a whole world of people from that uh, world, you realize countries can only do what's politically practical. Not yeah. just that, getting them all to come to the table is nearly impossible. And so I think 
you know, part of maybe connecting a theme from earlier of spending time in different spheres, you start to form empathy for how <laughs> hard it is to make certain things happen. And so in the book, we talk about the hopes for Glasgow. You know, Paris set the stage for this is how we come together. And then Glasgow was about how do we raise our ambition? And every year when we come together, how do we continue to raise it? And so from our work on the outside, John, we are pushing countries to be more aggressive with their climate commitments. Um, at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt right now, just I think a day or two ago, um, the UN released a report around the integrity of net zero goals. Uh, mm. You just can imagine our team how just ecstatic we were, right? Because we've been banging that <laughs> drum of like, these goals aren't clear. They're not 2050 net zero mm -hmm. uh, uh, ones. They're greenwashing. And to see the UN put out great, clear guidance as well as calling out the problem is really powerful. And so I think for us here, the non-governmental folks, the governmental folks, the multilateral UNs, the private sector, investors, and innovators, I mean, if we're marching in the same direction, championing very similar things, like it's kind of like little vectors, right? Yeah, like if we're all pointed totally. in different directions, we're not going to move fast. But if we can all be pointing in the same way, yeah. this transition will happen faster. It doesn't mean we have to agree with each other, by the way. It just means that we have to be pointing towards yep. a net zero that's really clear. And so, yeah, very excited about what's happening uh, at the UN on this like not allowing greenwashing, not allowing cutting corners. Zero means net zero. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's it's one one thing that's amazing just to notice, Ryan, is like when you're at a company, you know, you have okay, you know, set OKRs, you have, you know, you have key indicators, right? It's like there's some level of, you know, like you're able to maybe in some ways control what's happening at the company. Like what you guys have reached are reaching for and have taken on is sort of like, great, we've got this blueprint. How can we galvanize this sort of collective action with all these parties and actors at every different discipline that need to come together around a collective? How do we, to your point, like orient in the same direction such that like our collective mapping onto the same vector is like, you know, we actually like maximize our magnitude of like the impact that we can have. Absolutely. It seems that, you know, I imagine like there's a stance here. I love what you said around like we're pushing everybody to reach higher, you know, like. There's this element of like encouraging and empowering and creating the field. What, you know, now that you've released the book, you've created these plans, you're tracking the data, how, how have you been going about coordinating the yeah. directional efforts, you know, like at this like global level? I think we are so humbled that we got to be able to spend time with the people that we did, right? This plan is the reflection of a hundred different people's goals and where things needed to be pushed and pressed on. And so, like I said, this project started out with trying to help us articulate where we spent our time, where we invested, where we put our nonprofit dollars as well as advocacy work. And so, you know, we open up the plan every week, every month, and look at the activities where we are spending our time. Mm -hmm. And we say, where do we need to invest in next? I would say we're not directly trying to like, you know, mm -hmm. find every single person that's working on this part of like the beauty of a book and a website and being able to track these things. We really, it lets someone who's living on the other side of the coast or in a different country, pull this thing up and say, well, I want to tackle the climate crisis. Where do I start? right? How do we orient you towards the gigatons? How do we activate you to be a mobilizer, right? Like it's expected that you and I do the clean green thing, but that's not going to get us to net zero. We actually need the collective actions, like getting our mayors and our cities to ban gas in buildings and put protected bike lanes, getting our companies to make these kinds of commitments. It's, and so for us, I think we are banging on a drum really loud, Samar and, and John, and our coordination efforts come in the form of investments into, you know, clean energy funds or in the form of, um, uh, supporting nonprofits working in the space and, and things like that. And just wanted to touch on a couple things there. Um, there's also been this massive donation to set up the School of Sustainability at Stanford. How did that arise uh, out of all the different things that could have been done to move yeah. this forward? What was the thinking there and what's going on? So there are, there are three numbers for us to always remember, right? 2025 is like when things need to peak. 2030, we've got to cut things in half. And then 2050, we've got to get to zero. And so when you look across 
our key results on innovation, right? We're very clear about them. It's all about great technologies that drive down cost. We noticed we were missing a handful of companies that needed to be created around them, right, John? So it's like there was this like feeling that, yes, there's all this energy now, but we need more companies to be created to tackle even harder things like concrete and steel and different kinds of heat and batteries and things like that. And they don't just magically get formed if you create a bunch of R&D dollars. Like you actually need a place of excellence to nurture. Um, And then also when you look at the policy side, huge code red around the world on the things that need to be done. And so how do you create a place that both has great policy chops, great engineering technology chops, and very serendipitously about uh, maybe a year now or a half ago, we met the team at Stanford. They've been working a long time on this vision to create a sustainability school. And I think what the DOOR team and John and Ann really saw was an investment that could be catalytic, right? The number of companies that come out of Stanford, the number of battery companies, the number of engineers that work at, you know, the Teslas and Sunrun, like Sunrun founder is from, like, the, like it is a place where if you could get it to go all in on sustainability, like John says, that climate science is going to be the new computer science, it could really be catalytic. Mm-hmm. And so we're thrilled, so excited. The leadership there is incredible with Arun Majumdar and just the faculty that's both engineering and policy, right, under one roof. Lots of optimism for the present and future there. I love that. That's it's. I was so happy to hear when John, you know, when the School of Sustainability came about, I was like, this is going to be, you know, to your point, it's going to take a full transformation of our society to move towards, you know, like to move to the clean energy transition and how we think about sustainability is going to be so key to that. Ryan, I'd love to maybe start to orient towards like, where are there opportunities that you're seeing, you know, and it's, you know, it's beautiful because it seems like in many ways you've actually approached this in a very you know, with speed and scale, like somewhat decentralized way. Like how do we galvanize sort of like collective grassroots action such that it's not, you know, us telling you what you need to do, but like really mobilizing the sort of like grassroots. Where are you seeing their opportunities for innovation? You know, we talk about some of the categories, but I would just love to hear, you know, okay, we're in this process. Where are there gaps and opportunities that you see to have the highest leverage impact, um, you know, in the crisis that we're experiencing right now? Yeah. So the way to orient yourself, if you're trying to come at this, it's like, you know, this isn't a, a, a bits and bytes problem, right? It's like one of atoms and molecules and, and uh, concrete and steel and, you know, moving people around. It's, it's very physical. And so when you try to apply technology to the problem, always ask, what is it in service for? And what gigatons are you drawing down, right? And so there is a world of opportunity for technologists to help out on every single one of these objectives. And I'll share a few examples, right? You know, when it comes to electrifying transportation, the amount of software that exists to have these charging networks the way that they're supposed to be, to make these vehicles more autonomous and more efficient, there's a world of opportunity there. When you think about decarbonizing the grid, finding ways to do demand control, right? Turning things off when demand is really high and things like that are really exciting. When you think about protecting nature, you've got companies like Pachama using, Mm -hmm. you know, artificial intelligence with cameras and drones. Like there's just so much there and you kind of work your way down and you get to the one of carbon removal, which I think there's a lot of energy on. And so maybe I'll, yeah. rather than going deep there, let's let's actually unpack let's that for it. a good five, five-ish minutes. Perfect. But you jump to the accelerants, uh, you know, <laughs> on the policy and politics side, there's so much data that's like locked in places or not transparent that if you're an open data junkie, mm-hmm. how do you make it transparent, right? And how can that data transparency piece make action happen, right? Like to give you a quick example, last week, NASA released the top 50 methane leaks happening around the world. Mm -hmm. And they kind of just shared two in their press release. And, you know, being a government guy and an open data guy, I like sent them a note just saying, hi, like, where are the other 48? And can you share them online, (laughs) you know, in in a structured (laughs) way? Because if you do that, like the community is going to find a way to put that on people's radar. Totally. And, you know, they're like, we're working on it. But but and I would say is they are, but I've got a clock, you know, a little reminder on my email to nudge them again and to encourage them again. Um, so data around moving policy is powerful, turning movements into action. When you think about mobilizing people in your communities to do the right things, pushing for, you know, 
electric school buses, protected lanes, getting gas, like what tools exist there to mobilize? And then of course on innovation, you know, cheaper electricity, cheaper storage, cheaper hydrogen, all these things are going to need engineering chops paired with, I would call it like digital tech. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. I love that. We just had, you know, we had uh, Flow Carbon on. We've had a few sort of like parties that are now sort of like coming in and looking at the carbon market space. We're seeing a lot of innovation there. You know, I'm curious, and maybe this is like, this is a, a fun vantage point to sort of jump in. What are the roles in which you see like decentralized sets of technologies like Web3, yeah. crypto, crypto economics interfacing with some of the global coordination problems with carbon and also more generally, I'd love to hear like, what's your take? How can yeah. some of the tools here be in service of what we're seeing? But also just getting like your honest take <laughs> honest on take. that particular yeah, of course. Test. Like, what do you <laughs> think of Web3, <laughs> let alone Web3 and climate? Like, I just want to, maybe we can, we can start there. Well, so this is where it's by just reminder to orient yourself towards the gigatons and like, what is this technology in service for? And is the tool you're picking the right one to draw these emissions down? And so there's been a lot of energy around carbon markets. And before talking about Web3, I'll tell you our point of view on the carbon mm-hmm. markets. The carbon markets are over bloated, right? They're effectively yeah. trying to solve for a lot of things as one fungible thing you can trade around. And I think Hmm. even before jumping to the technology of how you make it work, the community is trying to wrestle with how do you deal with what are really three types of carbon credit offsets, right? So offset is the big term, but it's really, you're talking about there's things dealing with reduction, right? These offsets you buy that finance a wind project or may finance cleaner cooking stoves in the developing world. So that's one kind, right? The reduction offsets. You have protection offsets, which are really protecting forests and oceans and things like that, which really need to happen, but they're part of this category. And then you have removal, right? In its own category of its own that uses nature, you know, reforestation or afforestation or carbon removal like DAC or things like bio oil, like Charm is doing, right? You've got these three kinds of things. And if you really interrogate it, you know, it's like, apples and jeans and, you know, milk, they're all different. They're not actually the same one core commodity. And I think this community is going to go in the years of 2022 and 23, this evolution of realizing if we want a vibrant carbon market, it's actually a few markets. And in each market, there are different things you are going to try to validate for quality, for durability, for longevity and things like that. So that's where we currently are. Mm -hmm. The, the next thread to pull on is, well, who buys these yeah. carbon yeah. three different types of, of, of offset credits? And I think that's what the community is wrestling with, too. Mm-hmm. You've got on one side companies going, what do I need to buy and how much should I spend? And is that my right thing to do? And then on the other side, you've got a lot of nature uh, groups as well as the global scene saying there needs to be more money flowing to protecting our forest and getting financing for the developing world. And they're all going after this one pool of magical, mystical, voluntary dollars. Um, And it's our point of view as a team that, you know, we've got to be really clear about the role that each of these kinds of credits can play. So if you're a company, if you've got money to tackle this problem, you should first be cutting your emissions and conserving your energy. Totally. And then saying, how do I catalyze a removal market that needs to be at scale by 2040 or 50, right? Because, you know, we're going to have to get removed five to 10 gigatons. Most companies will have to buy five to 10% of their emissions. It's 600 bucks a ton today. We need it to get to 150, 100 to $50, right? Get it as cheap as possible. And so for those companies, it's catalyzing. Look at maybe 0.1% of your emissions and buy removal for that. But then also looking at the emissions that you've left over and saying, I should be a good steward of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? I should find a way to neutralize my emissions on my way to net zero, and you should buy protection yep. and reduction offsets. You should be trying to be a good steward while you're emitting here, at least trying to neutralize and balance. You're not zeroing out things because your emissions and the world's are different. And so I think that's a drumbeat we're trying to really amplify as we get to the end of this year and early next is – you should be doing both. You've got to catalyze this net zero removal market, but you also should be looking at neutralizing your emissions because it's so cheap, those offsets to buy, and they go to such good projects around the world. 
So now to the Web3, now to the decentralized tech, and now to see where those fit. I think now how I've, I've just laid out the, the construct of the problem and the challenge, the technology tools that you have at your disposal can absolutely help with these things, right? I think if you go and read the critiques of how Web3 has been applied to the carbon markets, you can see that in some way it's propped up some of the quote unquote bad offsets. Um, and I think that should be unpacked. Yes, it has been used to prop up some of the bad offsets. But I think what we need to do is if we split these into the three markets, we can actually find a way for the Web3 community and the companies that are behind them to lift up the good kinds, right? And realizing that, you know, the MRV stuff, the measurement reporting verification pieces are actually going to be really decentralized. So how do you lean in on that as being a part of the puzzle, totally. right? Like, you know, it's one of the technology tools that you have. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the mental models there. And I wonder just moving beyond carbon um, towards kind of the broader natural capital asset uh, market and the concept of investing in nature uh, broader as a whole, like what kind of trends are you seeing in that space? And yeah, what opportunities are you excited about there? Yeah, on the natural market side, I think there's, you know, we're going to need, in the, at least in the plan, the KRSA, five gigatons of nature-based, five gigatons of engineered removal. And on the engineered side, there's multiple approaches. There's a handful of funds like lower carbons, capital, as well as breakthrough and others that are investing, even ourselves, into the engineered ways. On the nature-based side, we need to find ways to really encourage Mother Nature to do what it does really well, which is grow in the places that it used to grow. And so we have a part in the book that goes, well, can we just plant a trillion trees? And the answer is, it's not as simple as that looks, right? If you try to plant monoculture mm -hmm. uh, trees that are in places that they're not supposed to grow, then, then no. Like the best thing you can do first is to not cut down a forest. Yeah. So protection is really important. Then the next best thing you can do is encourage regrowth. Yeah. Right, because a forest will naturally regrow itself if you get out of its way. That's why there's the KR around thirty by thirty and fifty by fifty on the nature protect, mm -hmm. you know, protect nature piece. Like if we protect our forests and you know peatlands and oceans and kelp, you know, pieces, Mother Nature does a really good job on its own. When we think about innovation and in tackling the climate crisis, yeah. we're trying to sometimes find this silver bullet chemical technology battery thing. Yeah. And some of the most powerful tools we have to hit our intermediate goal, right, like cutting in half yeah. by 2030, are really, uh, you know, innovative but simple things. Like they take a lot of will to do, right? Mm. Can we protect parts yeah. of nature? Yeah. Can we carve out parts of our roads for bikes. Yeah. You know, in a city, in its electrification plan, it's going to take 20, 12 to 20 years, depending on how aggressive they are, to switch everyone to EVs. You know what you can do in two to six months is carve up your streets, dedicate you know, safe spots for people to ride bikes, and the emissions get redu you know, reduced immediately. And it's these like other innovative things around green spaces and you know, trees and cities to you know, ensure you use less heating. and like, There's just so much there that the innovative thing is the will of us and people yeah, and communities. Totally. So, I, you know, I, and just like riff on that too, I think some, in some ways, you know, even to your earlier point about nature, it's like, in some ways it's, it's, it really is just about getting out of the way, like letting like nature and life has a natural capacity to regenerate itself and to heal. And if we stop, you know, it's like, it's like if we can actually create space for some of those processes to actually like unfold, you know, it's like there's a there's a sort of a way of collaborating with nature in there is. tackling the, right the underlying crisis. The the thing that you when you when you unpack like it's so it's very simple for us to say it, and then when you like zoom in, you're like, oh, you know, these people aren't tearing down forests because they hate the forest or like want to be anti you know climate. You know, for a lot of cases it's survival, a lot of cases it's of economic, and so when you think about protecting forests, it's you know, bans are the easiest way to do it. But for countries, it's really hard politically to do it if there's no support for those people to be working elsewhere or doing things. Yeah. Um, when you think about our streets and cities, like we're very incentivized around driving and cars and all of those things and commerce. 
And we just need new data, which is like beautifully has happened since COVID showing that actually, hey, if you dedicate safe spaces for people and cars and kids, sorry, not cars, bikes and kids, Mm -hmm. more commerce happens, more traffic actually and cars flow as well too, because people are out of your way. Like we're, we're kind of entering in this neat, really, really neat moment, I think, which is we're going to be gung-ho on all the tech, new concretes, new steels, new fusion stuff. But I think we're going to have the other half of the movement going, well, let's deploy the heck out of the technology that we have, right? And not just that, let's like shape our cities to being better and cleaner and nicer. Yeah, like the the North Star around this is, yes, it's, it's, it's reducing our emissions, but along the way you get cleaner air, you get cleaner water, you get also incredible biodiversity, like, like, right. You protect, protect the forest totally. species get to thrive. Yeah. It, there's something really inspiring, motivating and economic to about this, right? Like, yeah. you know, pull on all the heartstrings that we have as we think about this topic, but then put on your hat, which, you know, John says at best, he goes, when the right thing mm-hmm. becomes the profitable thing, it'll be yeah. the probable thing. A hundred percent. So all the solar and wind being deployed around the world, where project financing is, you know, being put behind it, it's not charity anymore, right? Like early yeah. days it was, you know, in some of the experiments, but today it's because it's the cheaper, greener thing. And so I think like this is sort of a thread to pull on, you know, someone I think once asked, because Ryan, are you a like growth person or a degrowth person? And I was like, I'm both. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we, we like the amount of energy, the amount of people we have to feed and all that is going to be growing. So how do we make sure it's the clean green thing? Yeah. But on the quote unquote, degrowth side, like thinking about carving up our streets, right? Getting away from cars, protecting our, like, the, you know, not eating less beef and lamb and di- like, like we have to, totally. You know, it's both. I'm a both kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. I, it's like within a system, right? Within an economic system, let's say within our current economic framework, it's like, it's like, hey, let's degrowth on the things that are actually depleting ourselves, our environments and our you know, and nature and let's grow, let's expand in all the ways that let us create a more beautiful, sustainable environment so, for, uh, for us, for our children. And, you know, it's like, I love that sort of like dance between both. It's like, no, it's not about only degrowth or, Hey, let's like villainize our system for being so growth focused. It's like, no, let's mm-hmm. like degrow in the ways that are no longer serving us. And let's grow in the ways that we want to be experiencing life in our environments. You said it more beautifully and succinctly than I did. That, 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 that's the, the, the thing about this tackling this crisis and why we poured so much energy into the book and spent so much time with people was these solutions and problems aren't just one-sided or even just black or white. Like there's so much nuance to them. And that isn't to say like it's complex, don't spend time here. It's, oh, no, no, let us explain every part of it to you in this structured way so you can be more equipped when you hear people throw out the reasons why it might not work, yeah. and right? So we can equip you with the counter parry and things like that. Like we want people to get really smart about this climate mm-hmm. crisis so you're not focused on bright and shiny objects, things that won't scale, and you'll actually spend your time on the gigatons, on the things that show promise, on the areas we'll where if we put our collective effort, we can tackle this. And it seems like there's an interesting kind of cultural dance that mm-hmm. is surfacing in this conversation. On the one side, we have this kind of techno solutionism where I think there's a lot of people out there. I was listening to a podcast of a friend of mine who's just like, I fully wholeheartedly believe technology is a solution. It's going to solve everything. And we just need to invest loads of money and it will pave the way. And on the other side, we talked about the kind of degrowth folks who just want to cut everything back and really reduce people's quality of life and it's a kind of austerity movement for nature. And it seems like between both of these spectrums is money itself as a vehicle. And it's almost as if money provides an interesting backdrop or lattice work for the whole speed and scale plan. I wanted to get your thoughts on this idea that we've been cultivating in the regenerative finance space about redesigning money itself. Where if we look at history, you know, there was a time where the only people who could read were the religious elite and the language um, that was, you know, communicated from the knowledge that was derived was was Latin. And nobody really spoke this. There's this massive separation of power as a result of access to knowledge. And now what I feel like we have with Web3 is the ability to design money in various forms that express various value and various accounts of value. And I just want to get your thought of like what you think this 
as a trend represents in this whole climate symphony around redesigning money to heal the earth. What comes up for you, Ryan? Or Yeah. When I hear money and, you know, kind of saving the planet, my brain immediately jumps to project financing around the world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of money that gets financed for fossil fuel projects needs to go down and not because, um, well, let me play that one back again. It, it's, um, it's really cheap to finance a clean green thing in the United States. It's really cheap to finance it in the U.S. You go to places like India, Africa, Brazil, the price goes up. And because of that, the deployment of capital isn't happening faster. And so you're hearing and seeing a movement around, you know, can the World Bank or other places take that first risk, right? Because, you know, deploying projects in those countries are very different than the U.S. and Europe, right? Like from a risk point of view and access point of view and stuff. And so, you know, how can we de-risk this capital when it gets deployed in these other parts of the world? Because when it does, then... Those countries that are, you know, energizing its people, right? Some of these countries have just 30, 40% of people that have access to energy, right? And you mm-hmm. and I can't tell them, you can't do what we did, right? And so the oh, only thing that we can do as, you know, techno-optimist kind of folks is to ensure that the clean green thing is cheaper, right? And the yeah. only way to do that is to invest and to innovate and scale it in the U.S., Europe, and China so the rest of the world gets it yep. on this cheaper sense. But John, your question was around new kinds of capital, right? I think the pressure test here is in service of what, right? Can these new ways that capital can be created, managed, and flowed, can they drive real action on the ground, right? Real projects being deployed, real green steel being poured. And so I don't have an answer. I just have what, you know, yeah. like there's the technology thing that we have today, but I, but I do have the answer on what it needs to do. Yeah, totally. You know, in two days from now, but the tomorrow part, I, I really think that's the charge for everyone that's that's listening is mm, totally. what and, do we need to do to take our effort and translate it into you know, you know, PV, wind turbines and things like that. Um, I, I think we're also in a very, um, you know, spi- I said it's a spicy time and it's spicy for like three reasons, right? You've got democracy in the U.S. that's, uh, uh, at, you know, under attack and at, at pressure. You've got this U.N., co- you know, uh, uh, thing happening, reminding us that we're you know running out of time and we're still emitting a ton. But then I think also in, in this world here, and I would love your kinds mm-hmm. of both the thoughts and reactions is, you know, with what you're seeing with FTX and that world, yeah. like what does it mean for Web3 and what does it mean for the decentralized finance pieces? What's, what's your guys' reaction and take to that? Yeah. You know, I think it's one of the things that I just want to echo that I think Ryan, that I think is really important here to just resurface is like in service of what, you know, like we have tools, what are they in service of, you know? And I think there's a, you know, and and I think money is really like a sort of a proxy for how value can be, can flow to your point, value can flow, be allocated and so on and so forth. Right. And I think creating money for the sake of creating money isn't necessarily valuable to anybody. You know, it's like, that is, You know, it's great. You can like hype something up, you know, through like some form of like social mechanism. But then ultimately, what's the base? You know, it's like it's going to ultimately collapse on itself. And I think, you know, from like what I at least what I see is like a lot of crypto has and I've seen this now across many years has been propped up on hopes and dreams and what might be possible. And like, you know, and a lot of it is just quite blatantly just speculation on Mm. something Mm going to be valuable in the future. And that's not to say, I, I think like, you know, something which I, I do believe that, you know, all that it said is that like, you know, crypto and Web3 fundamentally, I think, is about empowering people at, like on an economic playing field. I think emerging markets, places where people have traditionally been underbanked or haven't had access to the financial system. I think there's some really interesting possibilities there around like, you know, how do we get people on board into a financial system where they can now access capital to then be able to do and lead these projects? Like how do we coordinate Mm. action and incentivize certain kinds of behavior? I think it feels like we're in that sort of process of figuring some of the things out. You know, one thing which I, one project which I always always loved is like an example is like Helium of like, hey, how do we share wireless connectivity? And they found a way to, you know, bootstrap devices on the ground and leverage this economic incentive to like, you know, enable data sharing. And I think MRV is going to be this place where we'll see a lot of innovation as well. I think we need to orient on where we're going and what we're trying to do and let the like form 
of how we get mm. there sort of pull itself from. Like not to be a hammer looking for a nail, but great. Mm. There's going to be ways in which having an open ledger that can track in a transparent, data-driven way all the things that are happening within a shared population can be really useful. You know, that transparency that you talked about, there's, there's ways in which having an open financial system is useful for seeing how value is flowing, what's actually being done, where where is money actually going, right? In a way that existing, you know, I think sometimes our system can be opaque, like where it actually is value flowing. And it accrues to a minority of people, you know, I think like, yeah, the this I'll go back to the same statement of, you know, what is the technology truly in service of? I think what we've seen over the last year is that a lot of the Web3 institutions that were created were in service of a number of egos who were trying to accumulate wealth and status for themselves. And thankfully, we're seeing that collapse. And I think this isn't Web3. Web3 provides a very transparent lens for society as a whole. I think this is really showing humanity what we actually value. We're still following that story of success that says, my job in this world is to accumulate as much as I can and get as much status as possible before I die because this is all there is. And I think as we're seeing these you know, systems of excess get stripped away and the reality of climate change hitting people in the face day to day, flooding, heat waves, you know, starvation, people are gonna realize, oh my gosh, you know, we either have a choice to fight this war or lean into a better way of being human that actually is is good for us all and recognizes the role that we play with nature and that we're not separate from it. So that's my hope. Um, curious, Ryan, we've got a few more minutes yeah. here. If there's anything there and that I'd love to leave with a call to action for listeners. But yeah, I just want to see if there's anything. Of you want course. To I mean, you know, the, the thing that you both are, I mean, Samara and, and John, what you said, it's like in service. I think the theme that we've been keep coming back to is in service of what? Right. And if it's in service of hype and speculation, then it crashes. Right. But if it's in service of getting connectivity to people that don't have it, in that example you shared, if it's in service of a vibrant carbon market that is helping us find, you know, the integrity of these different removal and protection efforts and so forth, that's worth it. And so for anyone listening, it's like asking the question of in service of what? Because that what has to be something valuable. It has to be something someone needs, wants, will pay for, will get joy from, right? And um, orient yourself around the problem. Speedandscale.com is a great way to do that. And then if you want to act, you know, there's a world of resources that we have on there that show you what you can do, what you can do as an employee, what you can do for your city. But you know, I think your audience also are a handful of innovators and entrepreneurs and builders. And so there's an ecosystem of funders out there that want to invest in clean tech, in scaling this, the tools that are needed for this transition. And if you're listening and you're someone looking for a job at one of these places, there are two places I'd point you that come to mind. Climate Draft, Climate Draft, that has this list of great opportunities. Or go to any of the, you know, whether it's Breakthrough Energy Ventures or Lower Carbon, they all have these job boards from all of their portfolio companies. And just, you know, I would encourage you just to look around and click through them so you see the kinds of roles and opportunities that are that are there. But But my invitation is to come join this fight, come join this effort and this movement. And whether or not you're going to build a whole company around it or join it, there's still something you can do as a person, as someone who lives in your community, as an employee. So um, I'm wildly, wildly optimistic that we can tackle this crisis, but it's going to take us all, all, all in. I I just want to, I mean, Ryan, I think just to reflect and just share, like what a gift that you guys have given to the world, you know, with speed and scale and the plan, like the thoughtfulness around how do we equip? I love this sort of like framing of like, how do we equip people with the knowledge and the tools that they need to take and understand what what action is highest leverage in the collective movement, you know? And it's not prescribing or being like, it's like, you know, like we said, degrowth or growth. It's like, no, actually like, Let's frame the North Star on what we're trying to create and everything is in service of that. You know, so I think that I just love that Absolutely. sort of like North Star, what is everything that we're doing in service of and recognizing that like there's all a, there's a part to play here for everyone. There is. This was an absolute joy. Thank you for sharing 
our work with your community. And I can't wait to just work together with you both and everyone that's in it. So, thanks so much. And for people who want to reach out, uh, you can follow Ryan on Twitter, R Y P A N, and also Speed and Scale at Speed and Scale. And yeah, grab the book, check out the website, jump in the symphony. Thanks, Ryan. Have a good rest of your day, good friend.